welcome to Working Classy. A show about creativity, productivity, doing what you love, making money. We're your hosts. I'm Isabel Lee. And I'm Laurel Hachinovo. Welcome to episode 24 with Jessica Dean Rose, author of How to Survive on Set and assistant director for feature films. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you guys. First off, I would like to talk a little bit about how you are doing. How are you both doing? It's uh, still a crazy time. It's been a crazy time for almost half a year, uh, over half a year now. Yeah. 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 It's it's still strange. I mean, film is really uh, taken a really hard hit during this and it's just now starting to, um, you know, some small indie movies are starting up and we're starting to get back to work, but um, it's been quite an adjustment to go from, you know, and it, I think it's true for everybody in the industry, people who usually work over 12 hour days, five days a week consistently. And then all of a sudden you're homebound. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But you have a dog to help you um, ride through this currently. Yeah. Yeah. I did find a dog and rescued her and she's been um, a good distraction and just a lot. um, There's been a lot to put into her and a lot of energy to put into her. So it's definitely made the time pass quicker and it just makes you feel a little bit better because she's such a happy dog all the time. So just <laughs> when we, she comes up to you smiling, your day gets a little better. So Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And we might hear from her later too. So that, that'll be great. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going, Isabel? Oh, you know. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I know. Um, we did just do an episode on what it's like running a restaurant in a pandemic. So yeah. So, yeah. you know, hanging in there. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, rough news week this week. Oh, man, no joke. Uh, yeah. I took it a lot harder than I thought I might, but, you know. Yeah, it's coming in waves Yay. for me. It's, yeah. Because I, I, I think um, as someone, like, as a as a gay person whose rights, like, existential rights are constantly decided by the Supreme Court, having, mm-hmm. like, losing a justice who would have pushed for for me has been you know like mm-hmm. oh yeah she's gone you know it's like right. oh great so yeah 2020 everybody right yeah. yeah yeah and I think even though all of us knew she had cancer it was is kind oh, of yeah. unexpected you know yeah. Like, yeah you didn't really get the vibe that this was something that may happen before you know November right mm-hmm. and so I I think it just you know, it being September of this year in an election year and it, it really hitting people um, kind of suddenly because even though I knew, you know, I knew, but I also know like old Jewish women live forever. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I expected I her to live forever and I expected her to be with us forever. Um, yeah, yeah. And I was like, cancer schmancer, like whatever, she's going to be fine. Um, yeah. So I think that was another thing that was hard. It was kind of sudden, even though we all did know that you know she was yeah. sick yeah yeah i think yeah maybe knowing that she had cancer like we we'd gotten that news previously and so we you know i think when i first heard that she had cancer i was like oh no mm-hmm. and then you know she was fine and then she was you know i guess in remission or um uh her health was fine you know and then so we we're like okay okay so she can beat cancer that's cool <laughs> and then and then she didn't once and yeah and so now we're here 
but I do think I do think it's gonna um, just push people to, you know, go be at the polls, and it's gonna push people. I hope so. More and yeah. become a little bit more vocal, um, especially among women. I see it really happening. That's true. Um, yeah. Like women are really feeling emboldened. Like there was a day of being sad, and then like as women do, the next day, all right, we're gonna crush it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Great point. Huh. <laughs> it's so hard to like segue from actual 2020 news to well, it's still 2020 news, but um how how are you doing, Laurel? Oh hi. Yeah, I'm <laughs> doing all right. Uh thanks for asking. Yeah, I think as Jessica said, um I went through the despair phase, right? Um, but I feel like we don't have the luxury of staying in that phase for very long, especially now. And so I'm, I'm back in the, uh, what do I do? Where do I channel this? Um, one of the things that hasn't helped me, I will say is listening to podcasts about like what could go wrong. (laughs) Um, like, so I, uh, there's this one podcast called opening arguments and these, these two guys talk about, uh, legal issues of the day, which there have been a ton of since, you know, since the, since Trump, um, became president uh but the last episode that they put out it was like an emergency episode and they were just like they were down they were um they were like you don't have to imagine the worst case scenario because we're in it this is it um we you know the conservatives already have a 5-4 majority in the court so you might think that giving them a 6-3 majority wouldn't be you know that big a deal but what you may not know is how many very sort of landmark political cases have been decided across that 5-4 boundary. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so what else could happen? One of the, okay, so one of the bright spots that I heard after Kavanaugh was installed um, is that something I didn't realize, but there don't have to be nine justices on the court. There could be 12, you know, there could be 13, there could be 53, you know, it's like there isn't a set number in the Constitution for how many justices need to make up the court. Um, so what we could do is flip the Senate, get the presidency back, and then pack like, you know, I'm not mathing right now, but like four more liberal justices in there who are in their 30s or, you know, like I don't just and like super buff. They're like CrossFitters. I don't know. Like, let's get them in there. <laughs> But um, so that's that's kind of what I'm holding on to right now is let's take the presidency, let's flip the Senate, and I'm I'm just gonna kind of like assume that they're gonna install some horrible person as their like sixth conservative in the court, and I'm just gonna like let that let that slide for now and focus on what I do have control over because I don't I don't know that worrying about whether or not they will is going to be that helpful right now because I'm like 90% sure that they will but um I don't know like maybe maybe it's it's useful to hope for that as well I just don't know what what else we could do anyway <laughs> Whew. um <clears throat> oh I was saving all that for my therapist you guys and now that's all like in this recording um I'll just send her the podcast that's fine there you go <laughs> Um, so we do actually have something related to the pandemic, which is, um, I think, I don't know, you, Jessica, you put out a book, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a slim book, but it's super dense, um, which is really cool. Uh, it's called How to Survive on Set, the Set Production Assistance Guidebook. Um, and you published this in the middle of a pandemic. When did you start writing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually credit 
pandemic for me having time, oh. you know, such, such a long break uh, where I it wasn't being offered movies. It wasn't even a choice to possibly work. You know, I think someday I would have done this, but I definitely don't think it would have come at this time. And so I, I think for me, it was kind of a, a good time to reflect to and think about um, set, you know, when you're missing what you love. So uh, that helped too. Yeah. Actually, and could you, could you describe what the book is about? Yeah. So it's uh, a book that I wrote for set PAs who are the people on set who um, are typically thought of really as gophers and assistants and people who get coffee and um, what their role is in the assistant directors department, which, uh, you know, assistant directors are probably the worst misnomer in the business. Um, (laughs) So if you don't know an assistant director is the person who runs set, they create the schedule for a movie. They call the, and they get the actors ready. Um, They're the person on set who runs things for the director so that he can focus on his creative vision. And we focus on, uh, the movie made. So the people who work for us are set PAs and I just thought that there needed to be something out there for them. And so I wrote, uh, this book, which just goes over the general staff PA positions that you'd find on a television or a film set. And it gives you a look into what their day really looks like because, um, if you see a PA on a TV show, they're like fumbling with of coffee and a script and you know some actors yelling at right. them and then they're like scurrying I'm <laughs> scared um and that's just not the case so uh I wrote something to kind of describe what they and uh something that could help people who want to learn really learn the details um that nobody's going to tell you until you uh make a mistake nice yeah and that sounds horrifying like what a what a terrifying situation to be in I picked it up because I have gotten into TV writing and I was curious about, you know, the other side of, um, I guess not the other side of the camera, but like what, what it would be like to be on an actual set. And just even like, so the first part of the book is dedicated to like a glossary of walkie lingo. And it's super fascinating. Like pumpkin is the time a minor has to be dismissed from set. That is such a cute term. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And, like, how would I know that? You know, <laughs> like everything I saw on like the same 10 phrases repeated. Mm, yeah. Um, and I thought that there needed to be just out there so that somebody walking onto set can have read that and, and have the knowledge like, oh, I remember reading, you know, about that. That's my minors and what time they're wrapped um, instead of being like, <laughs> Just pretending you know and like yeah (laughs) yeah totally can i actually ask before we get too far into it what your background oh thank you (laughs) i jumped right over yeah so for film and tv um you know i'm an assistant director now but i came up as a set pa that's pretty much the traditional path to becoming an assistant director and i fell into that through working at a music tv show in chicago Uh, which has been around for a long time. And I was there because I had a background in music. And so I worked doing photography and I was working with the bands. And through that, I learned a lot about filmmaking. Uh, Just, you know, Jerry will put you to work in addition. So it was like a film school for a couple of years. 
and I kind of stumbled into uh, what we call additional set PA, which is when you come and help out when there's a big day. So if we're doing some stunts and we need people on the streets helping us keep clear, we have these additional people come in to help our staff PAs who normally run set pretty well on their own and do the locking up by themselves. Um, and that's the additional manpower that we bring in. And I did that a couple times and I realized that I really wanted to stay and specifically that I wanted to stay and be an AD. Those first couple gigs, I had some very, very strong assistant directors that I would see just, you know, running these huge sets and calling the shots. And I just look at them and go, I want to be that guy. That's cool. I want to do that. So I, I kind of transitioned out of music kind of abruptly, um, I started getting film jobs more frequently and I decided that I was going to take the path to becoming an AD, um, which usually consists of many, many years of being a PA. I took a little bit of a different route and became a non-union assistant director years. I have done a lot of things um, before I got into film and I think that's something that needs to be like totally normalized. Being 20 years old and deciding you want to do something else yeah. is totally cool. Like you do not have to have it figured out. Like I think this idea that at 18 you have to know forever is like ludicrous. Yeah. Like didn't you, you also have done photography and didn't you also, I feel like I recall you studying biology at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I took I wouldn't say a break from artistry, but um, definitely a break from transitioning from being the artist to being someone who more supports artists, like a photographer, an AD, um, you know, a, a coordinator for concerts. When I was making that transition from artist to crew, kind of didn't know what to do. And I did not have a very traditional high school path. I graduated from an online school. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, because I was already doing so many that I, I just couldn't go to a traditional school. And so I kind of wanted that experience. So I thought I'll go to college. Um, <laughs> I had the, this interest in science and I thought maybe that I'd want to be a doctor. And, uh, I did the, I did the years and I got the degree in biology. Uh, but I realized that the actual practice of a scientist in America is a lot ethically that was just not my bag. And I kind of, I, I, I fell back into doing other things. At my, it was my senior year of college that I really started PAing on sets. And I realized that that's, that's more than what I, what I wanted to do. Anything else that I had tried out. Cool. So do you, do you feel like uh, your, your path to becoming an AD has, so it's non-traditional. Um, do you feel like some of the disparate things that you've done have helped inform the, the way that you do your job now? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, specifically my role is usually what's called a key second, who's the person who runs base camp, which is where your actors' trailers are and hair, makeup, and costumes, where all happens and uh something I see in myself much more than other ADs is an understanding for the talent mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. being somebody who has been a performer for one uh -huh. 
uh, I think completely handles how you how you handle performers because you know what it is to to need a moment and mm -hmm. have all these people depending on you rallying in that moment and that's a lot and so I think when I'm able to kind of recognize that sometimes in people and make the executive decision to give them a minute without asking them to come right away and um, just being a little bit more sensitive uh, to what it is they go through in a day you know like I'm very conscious of making sure my PAs show them where the bathroom is when they come to set <laughs> and, uh, and where they can get water so that they don't have to ask or feel like they have to have somebody take them and give them that little bit of independence and and knowledge because you know they they're not part of the crew they're not on radio they don't know so just doing little things to make them more comfortable um i think all of that stems from being an artist myself and then you know when i was at jbtv and doing other things artist relations and working with all these different personalities just gave me um kind of a different perspective. I I sometimes hear people say things about actors and I'm like, man, you have no idea what what they're they're in in this mm. moment. You know, sometimes I know that she just got a call that her dad's gonna pass away and maybe she is a little cranky on set today and maybe she's got a really good reason. And so I, I think there's a little bit of empathy that comes out of that that uh definitely comes from my background outside of film. Yeah. What about your science background? Does that ever inform how you approach your job? I feel like more it's the the being a critical thinker and being organized, mm -hmm. you know, as a as a key second, you're the communication hub and you really have to know what's going on with everybody. Uh and you can't be wrong. So I feel like Oh yeah. My science background is more checking and double checking and rechecking and yeah, um, having other people put eyes on things uh, to check for mistakes. And I think it's the meticulous peer review, <laughs> yeah, that that has maybe come through. But other than that, um, you know, maybe one day I would love for that to come up where I actually got to like contribute something like that, but not yet. <laughs> Let's take a quick break with a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more with Jessica Rose. You you noticed that there wasn't really anything out there that filled the need um, for this book, and I think according to the introduction, you you had sort of a an ad hoc version of this as was it like a binder or something that you would give to people or no, it was a. Uh... So it was this Word document that oh, okay. I started writing when I was a PA that started as just a list of things I learned that I didn't want to forget. You know, I'd add little tips and tricks uh, as people told me because I, at first I wasn't working very consistently and I was afraid that I would lose those little gems. And then when I started becoming, you know, a staff PA, I... Uh, I really started fleshing that document out more about what my day was like and how I did things. Um, and that was about a 10 to 12 page word document that I started the book with. Um, so I did have a good jumping off point because I had thought about a lot of things and, and written down things in real time, you know, like as an AD, there have been times that I've yelled it, well not yelled, <laughs> um, 
you know, had to speak to a PA about something that maybe didn't go the way that we wanted. And nine times out of 10, it, they didn't know. Uh, and so I would put it in the document because I started sending them the document at the beginning of movies. When, I, when I'd have a moment like that, where I thought I never want to have to have that conversation again, mm. that was too basic. Mm. Uh, I write it down because at the end of the day, that that was a failure of mine to be a leader and give them that information. So um, it kind of started becoming this thing where I'd hand out and I'd go, these are the mistakes I don't want to talk to you about. That's great. Yeah. Is that, and then I kind of broke it down into chapters based on uh, the five set PA positions. And then I thought about, you know, what else do PAs need to know? And the most important thing is radios um mm -hmm. and you know kind of set etiquette so the first two chapters focus on those things they go into the staff pa positions and then it wraps up with additional pas and uh, future assistant directors i was gonna ask so you've been you know passing this out freely kind of on your own knowing that people needed this information at what point did you think this needs to be a book like this needs to be in the hands of everybody who's trying to do this. I've had the thought a couple times when when people read it and they're just like, "That's good." <laughs> they would read it. That stuff everybody needs to know that nobody knows on their first day. Uh, the show I did right before the pandemic hit, like I was not sure I was going to make a flight home um, because things were starting to get crazy in the U.S. Somebody on the movie had read it and said, "You should add a vocab section." Uh, yeah. So I, I started adding a vocab section to the document, and that's when I thought, this is too much. This has <laughs> to be a separate document, and then it became a separate document, and I thought, maybe now it's the time to, to write the book. That's cool. Yeah. And you've gotten it, um, at least according to Amazon, uh, uh, it's, it's growing in reviews. I think uh, when I first picked it up, it had like five reviews, and it's got 14, and all of them are five stars. So it feels like it's resonating with people. Um, and it's, it's a very useful, a useful guide. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest reasons I wrote the book and that I wanted there to be a book like this, um, because there are, there are some articles online about how to be a PA. There are two other existing books about being a, a production assistant, but I thought a lot was missing. A lot of the things that I, I say, like nobody like there are things that I remember one day a makeup artist taking me to the side and giving me the note about how to knock on their trailer door and properly step up. And she said, no one's going to tell you that you did that wrong. Wow. Wait, how do you but do that? <laughs> so for the hair and makeup trailer specifically, you would knock, open the door, say that you're stepping up and then wait so that if somebody needs to say, no, don't do that, you can hear them yeah. and not go up. And then you can step up the trailer doors and you do that because sometimes, you know, hairstylists have scissors next oh to hair oh, or makeup artists have eyeliner next to eyes and one good jostle of a trailer and that makeup is in the eye. Right. So it's a, it's really a thing that you wouldn't think about um if you're a PA and someone hands you a breakfast order and says go give this to makeup right what would you do you'd go you'd probably not even knock just open the trailer door walk up and give someone their breakfast right right and not know that that was an egregious lack <laughs> of etiquette that you just displayed um even though you're probably like bouncing down like I got to go up in the makeup trailer I got to give someone their breakfast right like, right 
bopping around like you got to do something new and not knowing that probably the minute you left, you know, there was probably some, some words said about that. You know, I remember, I remember being a PA and a wardrobe person basically stopping me from getting a job because I did something wrong on my first movie that I ever was at base camp. And I just remember getting that note from somebody else as I was applying for a different job because she had somehow heard my name and said, oh no, I don't like her for this reason. And I just remember thinking, I didn't know that I was doing that wrong. Yeah. Nobody told me that that was a thing. Nobody told me that there was a certain way to do it. I just did what I thought worked in in every other way. What I did worked, but it didn't work for her. And what it is in particular is I did not go to their trailer when we were going to set because costumes, unlike hair and makeup, is on the radio. So I would say over the radio, hey, we're going to set. If you need to come, you can come get in this van. And then I would go on my merry way if nobody came. What I didn't know is that a lot of times costumers take their earpiece out and they set their radio out as they're messing around in the trailer and you need to go personally give them that invitation like you give it to hair and makeup. Why do they take their earpiece out? Um, you know, sometimes they've got to go, they're going and they're fumbling around with all these costumes in the back of the truck and it gets caught on oh, things, sure. hangers, yeah, you know, that makes sense. sometimes they've got an open walkie and they're listening it to their, they're listening to it in their trailer, but they can't get to it to respond to you, mm-hmm. to tell you that they need to go because their arms are full of clothes. Right, right, right. So then they've missed the van and you're the reason because you didn't go tell them. And I had no idea that this was something that happened, that sometimes they took their earpieces out, that somebody wasn't always listening to the radio. And it cost me a movie that's a Tom Hardy movie. It's called Capone. Uh. Um, and it cost me <laughs> on that movie. I always think back to that. And I just think about moments like that where I would hear later that I had made this egregious mistake, but nobody had told me. And I was like, wow, they were really just going to let me walk around continuing to make that mistake and look like a fool. And then just not get hired again ever, apparently. Right. And so I felt like in some ways there was like a club. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't in the club that had the good info. And I feel like a lot of people feel that way. It, it can be hard to find a mentor, which it really takes to thrive in the AD department. I, I kind of wanted to break that barrier down and I wanted the information to be out there. So if somebody really does want to be an AD and they want to come to set and be good, they at least have the opportunity to be a little bit more prepared than I was because I just showed up with like a can do attitude, which is great but not as helpful as some knowledge about what's happening around me. Yeah. So what was your process like turning that word doc into this actual book? Once I broke it down into the chapters, it was pretty haphazard, to be honest. (laughs) Um, I wrote as things came to me and I I would really just kind of sit around all day thinking about things and thinking about times that PAs had made mistakes and I had felt upset about it. The thing about film is like, once you've been on set for a while, there's things that seem so basic and so 101 that if somebody makes that mistake, you're like, is this person an idiot? (laughs) Is this person from a single functioning brain cell? Uh... You realize that five out of nine of the words you used in that sentence didn't make sense to them. Mm-hmm. you come to realize like maybe this person isn't an idiot. Maybe they're not being given enough information to prep themselves with to come to set and succeed rather than doing what I did, which was coming to set, paying attention and trying to figure it out, but making mistakes and having to learn from mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more we can eliminate that, the better. Yeah. 
Yeah, it look. I mean, like just flipping through the book, it feels like it's like like learning an entirely new language sometimes. Like, it, and it is kind of like even just looking at the lingo. But um, the things like how to knock on makeup's trailer, it's like there are a million things it seems like that you could get wrong. And how do you know what you don't know about any of this? So. Mm-hmm. I don't know how anyone has been a production assistant before this book came out. <laughs> like, do you just, you just kind of improvise and then hope that you survive? Like, that sounds terrifying. I don't know that I'd be able to do that. Yeah, that's 100% the way we do it. And a little bit of it is the AD department, more than any other department on set, I feel like is very militant and we kind of run set like a military, you know, there's a lot of hierarchy and things like that. But especially within my department, we're, we're kind of like drill sergeanty and things like that. Really, you do just show up and, and you try your best to pay attention and see what other people are doing and learn from that. But really, until you do it, you don't know. And if somebody doesn't show you, you're pretty much out of luck. I wanted to make that not the case because I feel like it makes it so difficult for kids like me who, who really wanted to be ADs and just felt like they couldn't get a shot because they didn't know the tricks and the tips that, you know, come with experience and come from somebody who knows telling you. And so I wanted this to be something like, well, this is, this is your friend telling you. That's really what I wanted it to be is like, um, this is something that, and it's something that I feel like people can go back to over and over again and look at it and in in each different section if they're hired and refresh and become a little bit better about the nuances that make that make the difference between somebody who's being yelled at by the first AD because God only knows what's happening and somebody who's getting a high five. It actually seems like without this book and without this sort of guidance, the turnover is probably really high, right? Like if people aren't doing it right, they don't know what else to do. People don't want to work with them anymore. Like how do they even And then they forward? just don't get hired. Right? They're like, okay, well, I tried, but. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the biggest issues I saw is I, I thought too often it's a popularity contest. Like mm. I know a lot of people who are like, yeah, he messes up a lot, but he's got such a good like spirit and stuff. And I'm like, ah. <sighs> Yes, that's great. But what I really need is the actors on set. And this kid's off dancing somewhere when he should be watching them. Like that feeling of maybe I won't be able to be an AD. Maybe I won't be able to figure this out was a huge reason to write this because I felt like so many people do get discouraged that they're like, all right, I'm not going to do this. Or they leave the AD department and they go literally anywhere else that's easier. Like you can literally go to any other department and, and probably have more, like more of a quote unquote fun time. Right. Um, but then you don't really get that, like um, that path to be becoming an AD, right? Because you're not moving up the PA ranks. That's when, you know, the PA goes and works for props and becomes a prop mm. assistant and they stay in that. And they become a prop master one day instead of becoming an AD. You know, I feel like feel like there's a lot of sometimes withholding information because it creates competition. Yeah. Wow. For you in the future, I definitely wanted to break, to like smash that down. I think that's a huge problem that I see in specific areas when I travel for shows. I see it more than others, um, where I, I don't see them nurturing a new set of like a new generation of ADs. I see them hiring the same five people over and over again, which 
I get it. You get your team on point, but I always say of your five, three should be great and two should be new. Oh yeah. That's nice. Are we going to make new ones? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can teach someone to be a PA and, and they can catch on quickly. So you can hire new people. It is an entry level position. Um, and I feel like that's just not done enough. So I thought that the book might help alleviate a little bit of that because now I feel like if I had walked on set with this knowledge, ADs would have been like, who is that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's what you want. You want somebody who's like, who is that kid? Because you know everything and because you're good. And I I think that this can kind of give people that that wasn't available before. Yeah, that's cool. What was the the self-publishing process like? Like, did you end up using, I don't know, InDesign or something to put the book together and have it? um, And then I I don't, I know nothing about that side of uh, what ha- like how a book is made I chose to use Apple pages because mm. uh, it makes it look very pretty and you can make it look like your book from the start which I think did inspire me a little bit to write and and keep things going but at the same time I came to find out that you cannot use Apple pages files anywhere oh. for anything <laughs> nice. except for Apple mm. yeah so then when I went to go publish I ended up having to do a lot of reformatting oh, and there were all of these headaches because I didn't choose a smarter file type to start with or more specifically I didn't look into what file you needed to end up with uh which would have been incredibly helpful I feel like that would have saved me a little bit so which what file type do you end up needing to be using yeah and one one thing I didn't know is you need a different one for paperbacks than you need for ebooks oh cool that's great yeah so so for a paperback you can pretty much create a pdf and you may have to do some adjusting within apple pages to make it look correct Mm -hmm. um sometimes it changes a couple things with their formatting but you can ultimately use a pdf even though it's not amazon's preferred file (laughs) (laughs) it's the file they got (laughs) Um, whereas Kindle has been pretty impossible for me to to publish on because you basically need to write your book in their program into Kindle or have absolutely no formatting in your book at all. Wow. Um, Yeah. But I have a lot. And so I, like, I didn't realize what a nightmare it would be trying to put out the Kindle edition that I've I've tried many iterations of and all of them have failed. So I feel like that's definitely something I didn't know about the publishing process and I didn't look into and maybe should have before I started. <laughs> uh, I started typing. Well it feels like kind of a theme for um even the content of the book. It's like you you never know what you don't know until you run into it. You know, and so here you are here you are. Now you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know there were certain things that like you know, at first I wasn't sure if I should self-publish, um, but I decided to go that way. And since the book has come out, I have spoken to a publisher about the possibility of other books. Oh, cool. Yeah. And through that, I found out that unless you've got some serious clout behind you, they're not uh, going to okay. do much for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I think it's very similar to, it felt very similar to record companies, mm. how they take a lot and they somewhat uh, artistically and creatively limit you. Yeah. So back in the day, the only way to write a book used to be publishing, right? Mm -hmm. And back in the day, the only way to get a record out was to have a record company. It's not that way anymore. When I was talking to the publishers and I realized kind of how 
little they had to offer me. It made me think about, you know, how recording artists are more and more going the route of not not using a label because not only do they get to keep all the money, they get to keep all the rights and they get to keep the creative control and they get to control the pricing and where it's released, everything. And I, I found out that a publisher is actually very kind of limiting. So I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't even try to go that way originally because I, I feel like the book wouldn't be what it is and it probably wouldn't be out yet. Yeah, good point. And so is your book produced through Amazon? Like directly? Is it only there? Physical? No. Um, I was also able to publish two Apple books, which does... does is one of the only places you can use a pages file. <laughs> um, so there is a book available on Apple Books. You know, no matter what way you slice it, there's a way to mm. get a copy of the book. That's good. In the process of writing, did you have to like hire an editor, have others proof or like give feedback to where you got to the point? Or was it one of those things where you just like, I'm going to do it myself, read it over and over <laughs> and try <laughs> yeah. to get through everything? Make sure it's good. That's that's pretty much what it was. I very much wanted a copy editor, and then I looked into how much a copy editor costs for 30,000 words, and it's a lot. Uh, mm. Can you give us a ballpark so, for how much they cost? I mean, even when I was looking on, say, Fiverr. Yeah. Um, for somebody It wasn't quality, $5? <laughs> I couldn't even get it done for a couple hundred dollars. Oh, yeah, yeah. So when I realized that that might be like an over $500 investment into the book, and I did not know if anybody would read the book or buy the book, right. I, decided, <laughs> I decided not to go that route. Yeah, yeah. So then it was me just pretty much reading it over and over and over. I sent it to a few people that were interested in reading it, but... To be honest, only two, I think two of them ended up actually giving notes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on it and being another set of eyes. That was definitely the most difficult part about self-publishing was doing the self-editing and being the writer. I wrote it. I've read this 50 times now. There's things that you can miss. You know, it's kind of, I feel like everything, you know, you post, you know, does anybody want to look at this? And everybody says, yeah. Right, yeah. And you send it to a bunch of people. And nobody looks at it. Yeah. So it was actually two assistants that have worked for me, put their eyes on it and did catch a couple mistakes. Um, so they helped and they gave a couple of notes that actually made it in the book. So that was super helpful. Cool. Good. Yeah. What's the plan now? Now that you've got this, this edition out, are you looking ahead? Yeah. So the next thing that I'm doing immediately following the book, I'm going to be releasing coaching and mentoring modules. Oh, nice. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, they should be out uh, in about the next month. There will be a website where people can talk to me about being a PA or an AD, and they can book either one-time or monthly sessions. Um, so the one-time is coaching. The monthly would be more mentoring. Mm -hmm. Each session is going to be one-on-one -on -one and tailored to what they want to learn. So when they sign up, they can pick how long the session is and then submit about what they want to learn about. So if they have a specific position that they want to go over, if they may, or maybe even they're trying to put their book together to get into the union and they have some questions, you know, as much as I would encourage them to contact the union directly, mm -hmm. I know that um, sometimes you just want to talk to somebody else who's done it yeah, and yeah. see what they did. They'll be able to submit and that way I can be prepared 
to best go through their questions and use that time in the best way to give them all the information that I can to get them ready. Because that, that kind of comes back to, you know, the somebody to talk to myself in my career and somebody to kind of guide me at the beginning. I feel like if I, even if I would have had this where I could pay somebody yeah. to tell me a little bit, about, you know, like the first time you're ever asked to take care of 300 radios, that can be a scary thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're told they're anywhere between 500 and $1,000 each and you're not allowed to let anybody lose any. Wow. Talking to somebody who has successfully done that <laughs> in the past can be invaluable. So that's the next thing that I want to put out to, you know, put another resource out there that, again, I think is kind of lacking right now. Yeah, yeah. We are on video right now and I can see that you have blue hair. And that reminds me that for this book, which is if you are if you see it on Amazon or Apple Books, it's orange. And you said, I think on Twitter, that you were working on a second edition, which you were considering making blue. Are you still working on a second edition? Yes. A part of uh part of how I soothed myself into publishing it so quickly was uh, knowing that I was going to do future editions and I was going to keep this book evolving. And so I, I wanted to get this one out because, and I have a note at the end of the book about this, that we could jump off and have more discussions about what it is to be in the AD department and have these roles and do them successfully and little things that you found out, you know, about how to do a breakfast order or how to do a lot of breakfast orders quickly that has really saved you that you don't figure out until you've had to do that. 80 days in a row yeah. for 50 people. Um, <laughs> so I want to add more um, based on what people send me mm -hmm. um, and things I think about as I continue to work because every job in film teaches you something. You know, you'll run into somebody and you'll realize sometimes I, I say the phrase, I didn't know I had to say that out loud. <laughs> yeah. And anytime ah. I have that feeling now I write it down for the book. Yeah, um, great. So that hopefully nobody has to say it out loud ever. I have anxiety um, in my stomach right now, just like hearing that that is a thing that's said to people. <laughs> just feels so like crushing. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, you don't tend to say it to them, but like I have definitely had moments where somebody has walked away and you're like, I had to oh, say yeah, that out loud. Yeah. Not realize that, that that, but again, I feel like that comes back to once you've been in production long enough, and, and I am unique that I came from a, a pr music production background, mm -hmm. so I had a lot to build off from that. You know, it just comes back to like, it's very hard to think back about your first day and what, did you, what didn't I know? Because the answer is everything. Right, yeah, like literally everything. I, I know about how any of this works and I had to figure it out. So I want to be able to expand upon the book and add to it if, if I think of things as I'm on set that aren't in there that could be beneficial. And I, uh, I wanted to be able to account for the fact that things change in film mm -hmm. all the time. I myself am guilty of using the phrase, we've been doing it the same since Gone with the Wind quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll say that, like, why are we trying to change something? We've been doing it the same since Gone with the Wind. We should do it this way. This is what we're yeah. Um, but sometimes things change, um, you know, like the, the inventions of computers massively revolutionized <laughs> how we get how we make policy. You know, the invention of cell phones has, has massively changed how a PAA operates. So I wanted to be able to account for facts, those kinds of things that change with time that, you know, there's no way they could have made it into the first edition because it's not a thing yet. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good call. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Jessica, man, thank you so much for um, not just a walkthrough of the book and the publishing process, but also a peek into what it's like being on set, because I find all that stuff fascinating. Like you I never, already you know, have some tips, yeah. and I don't <laughs> know when yeah. I'll ever use them, but <laughs> I, know, yeah. I know how to knock on a makeup trailer. Right, <laughs> right. And I have like, um, now I have anxiety about what it's like to order breakfast for <laughs> 50 people 80 days in a row and it's like it's not even something that's occurred to me um you know you like watch tv and movies all the time and you have no idea everything that goes on underneath it um so that was really cool but um yeah thanks for taking the time where can people find you online uh so my website is jessicadeanrose.com um that's also what you can search for me on imdb with is jessica dean rose my twitter handle is at Jessica Dean Rose and my Instagram is at Jess Dean Rose. Cool. Um, and then for, your website is where people will be able to find out about the like the coaching and, and mentorship stuff. Yeah. So once that launches, there will be links to that on my website. I'm actually using a platform called Teachable to to make those coaching modules available, but it will all be linked on my website. And there's also links on my website for the book, both the paperback and the ebook. And you can even see uh, all of like the photography and stuff from back in the day, nice. like, things that I used to do, how, how <laughs> things have evolved. Like, you know, if you look at my website, it's pretty much like all these different things. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. They're very, very different. But <laughs> like, all of these things go together. And the answer is they don't other than I like them. That's great. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, and we'll have all those links in the show notes as well. Um, yep. And lastly, uh, do you have a tip of the week for us tip nugget tip of, of the week. week tip of the week tip nugget <laughs> tip nugget um, <laughs> yes i would say my tip is give yourself permission and authority to do whatever it is that you want to do it's it's something that has served me particularly well in artistic endeavors. When I wanted to be in a band, I didn't wait to get in a band. I made a band. When I wanted to be a music photographer, I didn't wait for a publication to hire me. I created my own, started doing it that way. And when I wanted to write a book, I didn't wait for a publisher to, to want it. I just put it out. So yeah, I think that this is the only time in history where anybody, you know, whether they consider themselves an artist or not, can release a work to the public very easily with little to no capital behind them. Mm -hmm. And I'd really like to see people taking advantage of that more because I think it's going to diversify a lot of places where diversity is currently lacking because we're making it more accessible to everybody. I would say that and then um, maybe just be kind, mm -hmm. you know, both with yourself and others, like try to actively practice empathy. I had to be kind with myself when I was writing the book and, and say like, if there's a typo, it's not the end of the world. The information is still good. Mm -hmm. It's still helpful. And I feel like in 2020, we definitely need to be mindful of being empathetic to not only the people around us, but also ourselves, because this is a really difficult time um, for everybody. Yeah. Hard yeah. agree. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Um, this has been, this has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. It's been good to catch up with you guys. Like I'm sure people listening don't know, but we've known each other probably for like, I'm thinking about it now. It's probably like 10, I 10 know. years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are we that old? Sure. <laughs> yeah. We met, all we met when we broke. were 10. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. 
There you go. <laughs> no, okay. um, all right. So uh, thanks again. And we will talk to you all next week.